Okay. Good morning, Rock Bible Church. It is great to see all of you and to project to others of you. Uh, it is uh, fun to be back in church. In uh, first hour, we were outside and we had a great old time. New tents coming up and the whole thing. And uh, we passed out uh, grapefruits and pomegranates, the whole thing. Uh, but it was uh, it was great. So uh, for those of you at home, good to be with you. We're continuing our series this morning in the book of Joel, uh, chapter 3. And we're ending our series in the book of Joel, chapter 3. This is a three-chapter book. And he gets in with an event, kind of explains it, and then starts to talk about the future. And so we're going to jump into that and uh, get going. But first, we're going to pray. And so if you would, join with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for this morning, and thank you for uh, the opportunity to, to get together and uh, for great weather and for tents, but for buildings and cameras and all the different things that it takes, especially the people, Lord, um, for all that, that is being done to make sure that worship continues in your church. And so uh, pray you bless them. And then, Lord, that you would uh, remind us that all of these things are, are really secondary to your Son and your Word. And may we enjoy both of those this morning. Uh, may we understand more of who your son is through your word and that you might uh, bless us and help us to understand it through guidance of your spirit and through the story that we're about to read. And uh, we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, Joel starts with this story of locusts. This big swarm comes in, takes over, destroys everything, leaves almost nothing left. Uh, in chapter 2, uh, they, Joel starts comparing the locusts to this coming future and this army and, and what God's going to do and uh, getting people's attention. Um, and what we're going to see in chapter 3 is uh, the locusts are gone. There's not even any discussion about them anymore. And we've moved on simply to this, this future prophecy. And it's interesting because you start chapter 1 and you think, gosh, Joel's not a prophet. He's just, just telling a story about some locusts. Um, by the time we get to chapter 3, the locusts aren't even there anymore. They won't even be mentioned in our, our verses today. And he'll be talking all about the future and what has happened and how is it going to affect the future. And it's really going to start to give us a little action plan as to how are we supposed to maneuver, manipulate, um, and make our way through life. And so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and jump in and look at that. Uh, Joel chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. Uh, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and I want you to see this. This is uh, the beginning of the chapter. It's giving us a setting for where this is all going to happen. But I want you to see the promise that's inlaid in that first sentence. There's a day out in the future. So it's not now, it's coming later. But in that time, when I restore, uh, what's the business that God's in? He's in the business of restoration. Now, they needed to hear that because they just got a whole bunch of locusts come through. We need to hear that because we got a bunch of things we want restored. I mean, we're hoping 2021 is totally different than 2020. I, we, hopefully, 21 is just all about restoration. Get them back to normal. Let's hope. Um, but look at what he's restoring. The fortunes, right? Yeah. When's the last time you wished good fortune on somebody? It's this old phrase that used to happen all the time. It doesn't have, hey, good fortune on you and yours, right? God's not just in the, in the business of restoration, but fortunate restoration. He wants really good things. It's not that he's ignoring what's going on, that there's devastation, destruction, and that their community's in... Uh, chaos and whatnot. He says, don't worry. It's light and momentary affliction. It's going to go away. It's going to get better. So it's a great little promise. That's the background and the setting for this chapter. Now we have to know this. 
okay? And I really want to emphasize this, and we do this at our church fairly regularly, while I say when we're going through a passage that seems kind of dark or negative or too much evil or there's like condemnation or judgment or destruction, you know, a lot of times in the, in the history of the church, we've called it hellfire and brimstone, right? You kind of got to say it with an accent when you say that because, you know, it's a little corny. Ah, and we say, oh, boy, it's boy, bummer Sunday. The bummer Sunday, all this bad news. Uh, but at the same time, I always pair that with the idea that it's Happy Sunday. And you can, this is a chapter where you can look at it and say, oh, bummer Sunday. This is all bad news and destruction and um, judgment and the whole thing. Or you can look at what was intended, that there are two options. There's a happy Sunday. There is great news coming in this passage. So no matter how dark it looks or whatever, there's going to be darkness and whatnot, and people are going to get cut off and the whole thing. It's still meant to be good news, okay? Uh, In that day, verse 2, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people, verse 3, and have treaded, or excuse me, they have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. He says, I'm going to judge the nations. In that day, I'm going to take care of Judah and Jerusalem and Israel. They're going to be fine. There's good news for them and the people that follow me. But for those who have taken the things that are important to me and they've traded them for something else, squandered what I've given them. In fact, even people, we take a boy and we trade him for something. We take a girl and trade him for something. No, that's, that's not the business that I'm in. That's not why I gave you people. That's not why I made you. That's not the design and purpose for how life is supposed to go. He said, I'm going to make that right. And some people are going to pay, Right? Well, what are you to me? Verse 4 says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, these uh, cities just outside of of Israel, and all the regions of uh, Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? Is God actually asking a question here? Or is he being sarcastic? He's being absolutely dead sarcastic, right? Which, what I love, one of the things I love about him is that he has a sense of humor. He says, as if you could pay me back for something. Like, I did something and you didn't like it, and so you're going to try to get back at me? It's almost like God saying, yeah, that's kind of funny. <laughs> Good luck with that, <laughs> right? Are you going to pay me back for something? If you're paying me back, I'll return your payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. I'm going to wait any time, and I'm not going to just, like, poke you or prod you. Or whatever. It's on your head, like right in your face. I'll pay you back. If you want to play that game, you want to fight? Oh, we can fight. My dad used to um, do this to me when I was a little kid. I'd get all angry, and, and I'd want to fight with him. And he, and he, in a joking voice, with a smile on his face, he'd say, oh, are we fighting? Oh, great, that's good. I'm really good at fighting. Let's fight, okay? Let's fight. You do your best, and I'll do my best. And you know, I'll punch you, and then you punch me. We'll take turns going back and forth, and we'll see how that goes, right? And he would laugh at me kind of jokingly, a little bit smirky kind of thing. My dad was never abusive, amen. Um, but he would play with me like, no, you don't want to fight with me. If you fight with me, you lose. And I don't want to fight with you either, because if you fight with me, you lose, <laughs> Neither one of us want this. Let's do something better, something more. And this is what God's trying to say to them. It's like, why why are you fighting me? Why are you opposing me? You can't pay me back for anything. Now, don't worry. That never happens anymore. Whoops. Wait, maybe it does. Maybe it does still happen. Maybe people do go against God, ignore God, uh, run from God because they want to do their own thing. That's where they get in trouble. And he's going to talk about that a little bit more as we keep going. For you have, verse 5, for you have taken my silver and my gold, things that were his and valuable to him, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. I want to stop right there because I want you to see what, in fact, 
No, we're going to keep going. I'm going to come back to that, okay? Taking the silver and gold, carry away treasures into your temple. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Look at all this stuff you've done. Took my, my money, my silver gold. You took all the precious rich treasures. You took them. You ruined my people. You sold them into slavery or whatever. And you know what the worst part of that whole thing is? Go back one slide to the very bottom. What did you do with all that stuff? into your temples. Ooh. You see, there's only one temple. In fact, Paul talks about the idea that there really is only one God. And it's an acknowledgement, a logical progression from really Old Testament, the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That means don't worship anything except for me. And Paul makes the point of You know, anything else that you worship outside of God himself is a false idol because those gods do not exist. There is only one God, and so the argument would go backwards into time. There really is only one temple, God's temple. So all of these other temples, your temples that you've dragged all this stuff into, you've taken them in there because you want to worship other things. Really what you want to worship is yourself, your own preferences, passions, desires, pursuits, priorities. You're chasing all of those things and they have brought you to a place where you've built buildings. You've called them temples and now you're focusing your time and energy on those things instead of God. Folks, way more important than silver, gold, rich treasures, or anything you do to any other people. The primary thing in your life is do you follow the Lord or not? I think one of the gravest things in this little section is that they were people taking stuff and going into other temples. But don't worry, that doesn't happen today. Oops, wait, yes it does. My political party better win. My, my, my economy better get better. My race, my perception, my bank account, my relief package, my mask, my rights. Ooh, are we hearing it? We're worshiping at other temples. Careful. I mean, you can. Might not. But you got to be careful in our pursuit of that because what can be a good practice and logical and smart and good for community can turn into almost a religious following. He says, are you paying attention to the things that are important to me is what God's saying. All right, so we keep going. Uh, verse, I think we're seven now. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them. I'm going to get my people back. I'm going to bring them back. I will turn your payment on your own head. He's reiterating now what was said earlier. This is just a longer version of what was already said. Verse 8, I will sell your sons and your daughters. Remember they took a boy and, and traded it for a prostitute. They took a girl, traded it for wine. He says, yeah, you took a boy. I'm going to take your sons and your daughters. I'm going to do to you what you've been doing. I'm going to sell them into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away. Oh, you want to spread people out? You want to take what's valuable to me, and you want to stretch it thin across the landscape? I know how to play that game, God says, and I'm better at it. Now, doesn't that sound like a mean, vindictive God? Why would God do those things? Is is he mean, dark, not good, bad things? Why would he do that? Trying to punish or trying to get attention? I've always said that God will do whatever it takes to get your attention. Why? Because what does he really want? He wants to be with you. We call it relationship. We call it cooperation, connecting. You know what God really wants with you? He wants an interpersonal, immersive, interactive Relationship. That's what he wants from you. If he has to get your attention, he'll do whatever it takes to get your attention. That's what he wants. He said, so why would you go the other direction? You're going to play games with me? I'll play games with you as long as I need to play games with you till we stop playing games. And we're finally connected. And we do it in all kinds of ways, don't we? Uh, verse 9, here we go. 
Or next slide. For the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Uh Uh-oh, we were in a narrative, and now Joel breaks into poetry. It's kind of interesting what happens with the poetry. I'm not going to go into the, the... format of the poetry because we'll get bogged down. But I do want to point something out here in just a minute. But this is why the the text changes and it's into little prose, right? Little short sentences. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. He's saying get ready for war. Start planning. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. What's God saying? Oh, you, you want to fight with me? No problem. I'll give you some time. Uh, take your, all your time and your energy. Collect all your people, the biggest army you possibly can, and do your worst. Go ahead and do your worst. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And then watch this. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. He's not talking to the people of Israel. He's talking to the enemies. He's saying, Go get your plowshares and your hooks. You go ahead and call those weapons. And then you, all you weak people, you come on out. And you can pretend that you're strong. Let's see how this goes with your little prune hooks and stuff. And we're, do your worst. I'm not afraid. I'm not threatened. I'm not even challenged. This is like God saying, do your worst. It will have no effect. Yeah, that makes me nervous a little bit that God would say that. Why? Because he's mean? No, because of the implication of what it means about me. If he's telling them they can do their worst and they'll have no effect, what that means is that I could do my worst and have no effect. I could go and do as much evil, make as many bad decisions as possible, chase all the things that I want, and no matter how much I do, God is not threatened. He's not worried. It doesn't challenge him at all. In fact, no matter what I mess up, he can fix it. And make it as if I wasn't ever here. You guys would all forget about me. I would drift into the past, and he'd be fine, and you'd be fine. In fact, things might get even better than before I tried to do damage. God could make it so that it looked like I didn't even participate. I don't even get a participation ribbon. Darn it! You know what that means? It it could be as if I never existed. Praise God that that's not the only option. Praise God that really what he wants to say is, hey, you've got a choice. You can get involved. You can do good things. And instead of chasing all that bad stuff, why why don't you come along? Why don't you play along? Cooperate. We'll do some things together and we'll have a great experience. Why don't we do that? Instead, it says, you know, you want to fight against me? You're forgetting that you're weak, that you don't have swords. You don't even have real weapons. You have stuff that I gave you to build and harvest with, and you've decided to fight instead. And that only goes one way. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. And gather yourselves there. It's like God's talking to these people that are in opposition, these other people fighting against him. And then all of a sudden, uh, in, in the structure, we've got this like 10 or 11 lines, something changes, and then 10 or 11 lines, something changes, and then 10 or 11 lines. And that's what we're going to see through these next few verses. And here's one of the little changes. It's almost as if right here, Joel says, bring down your warriors, O Lord. All of a sudden, we're talking to God, and it's request. And I think it's Joel and, the, and representing the people saying, God, you're calling all of everybody out to war. Please make sure that you show up, because if you don't, we're going to be in trouble. Right? Can you make sure you bring your warriors? Which I think is funny, because I don't think God needs warriors. I think they can assemble everybody, and God can show up by himself and wipe them all out. But it's almost like the people saying... Lord, I, I believe you're there. I hope you're there. Make sure you're there. A great prayer for us to remember when we're in the midst of it. Verse 12, let the nations stir up themselves. Here we go back into talking to all of the opposition again. right? And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge. 
Ooh, that doesn't sound good. I'm going to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Now, this is a little bit of comedy, and I want to make sure you catch it. In chapter 1, the locusts come in, and they take away all the grain, all the wine, and all the oil. In chapter 2, God says, don't worry, I'm going to re replace and restore all the grain and all the wine and all the oil. And God says in chapter 3, I'm going to wipe out the opposition like grain, like wine, and like oil. I'm going to cut them off like grain. I'm going to harvest them. I'm going to crush them like grapes when you make wine. And I'm going to drain them like you would olives when you produce oil. Is God saying, um, yeah, this is funny. People trying to come and fight against me. I've got more than I, I need to take care of my people and those that follow me. Uh, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And this is one of those breaks again in the poetry where all of a sudden we've got this little phrase, set of phrases in the middle that says, uh, there's a valley. And all of a sudden, it, it's not Jehoshaphat anymore. Now it's valley of decision. For any of you that have been in the church for very long and have read much of Scripture, we, we talk about valleys all the time. And valleys tend to be places where war happens or something bad happens. There are once in a mile a little valley of paradise. But most of the time, we hear of the valley of Armageddon, right? The valley of Megiddo. That's what Armageddon means. Um, and so there, there's bad things. Here it doesn't say war, it says decision. Which begs the question, whose decision? Yours or God's? Do me a favor, say both. God has a decision to make and he lets us make decision as well. How cool is that? That this God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present and... Uh, can do anything, still gives us choice. It's like I used to say in student ministry for two decades, God gets to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants, for as long as he wants. This is your way of understanding what is sovereignty. What is this all-encompassing God who has complete control? In the midst of all of that control, it's almost like it says, hey, uh, what do you want to do? wait, I have a choice? Like, you'll engage with me? Like, I get to be part of the decision? I get to have a uniform and play in the game? Absolutely, he says. Yeah, I could make all of the decisions, and I do. But I want you to be able to make decisions as well. One of the greatest mysteries is how God is in full control, and we still have choice. And he says, that's all going to culminate in this valley when I'm going to judge, people are going to have to decide. And in judging, I'm going to decide based on what they decide. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. It says no matter how bad it gets, skies darken, earthquakes what is God? He's a refuge, protection, provision. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Why is he doing all this? So that you can know. So that you can know God, so that you can know who he is, so that you can chase that relationship, invest in it. You can fight with him a little, play with him a little, cooperate with him, hopefully more. And you actually get to know. That's great news. It means you have choice. But it's not just so that you get more grain and more wine and more olives. It's that you get more of him. And we said a couple weeks ago, you have to redefine your need. What is, what is really a need and what's a want? So you'll know that I am the Lord your God, verse 17, who dwells in Zion, my holy hill, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Ooh. Wow, is the Bible controversial? Like we don't like strangers, or like we're anti-stranger, or 
Remember what it says? So that you'll know the Lord your God, right? What if it that no stranger will pass through because there will be no such thing as a stranger anymore? Everyone's going to know. In fact, later in Scripture, much later in the New Testament, it says every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. You're going to get enough information to where you're going to know who God is. And yet, you still have a choice. You still have a choice. But you will be known because there won't be strangers anymore. Anybody who's trying to act like a stranger, he's going to say, yeah, you don't get to pass through no more. We're not playing that game anymore. You know, which is a scary thing about God. You know, he'll play games with you for a little while. And at some point, if you're not going to learn your lesson, he's going to stop playing with you. And now you're in the valley of decision and there's judgment and the whole thing. We want to avoid that. So verse 18, and in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine. Wait a minute. I thought we were going to have uh, darkness and earthquakes and stuff. No, no, no. All of a sudden we got sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Interesting. I I thought we were out of grain, wine, and oil. Why is it that all of a sudden now, if we go back, um, why is it that now we have sweet wine and we have milk? And we've got water? What's going on here? Aren't those all the things you would need to grow grain, grow uh, olives, and grow grapes? And it says you're going to have sweet wine. You're also going to have milk. That's new. Where'd that come from? And what's with all the water? How come we got a bunch of water all of a sudden? You know, water is one of the greatest needs in that region. But if you remember back to chapter 1 and 2, weren't there fires? We got all this water. Why? to prevent fire, to provide for what you need to drink, to grow things that you need to eat. Is, is God given a great picture here? Absolutely. It's going to play into what we figure out in a little bit when we get to our, um, to our, our fill-ins. Verse 19. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Wow, it was dark. And then it... Then it got light and happy, sweet one. Then it got dark again. What is going on? Is, is God confused and just jumping all over the place? We're going to get to that in just a second. But Judah shall be inhabited forever. That sound positive? Sure does. Jerusalem to all generations. For a little while? No. Later? No. Always. Not just now or later or for a little. Always. What does that say about God's commitment to his people and those that follow him? I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. He says, hadn't happened yet. So he's saying, you're going to look for this. This is what's coming. For the Lord dwells in Zion. And that last little phrase, that the Lord dwells in Zion, I want to make sure you understand what that means. He's saying, I'm right here. I didn't leave. I didn't forget. I'm not ignoring. No, I'm right here. I'm still here. I will be here. In fact, I never go away. It's almost like a little reminder, like, eh, as my dad used to say, don't get wise, bubble eyes. I'll knock you down to peanut size. Right? It's just for goofiness. Right? I love my dad. Amen? Hey, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen? This is Joel. We're all done now. But what do we take from this last chapter? All of a sudden, the locusts are gone. We don't even see him. And Joel starts talking about the future and who God is and those that oppose him. But most importantly, he talks about those that choose him and who he is for those that choose him. And I want us to see some takeaways from this because they're super important. Um, In verse 4, it says uh, that, uh, what are you, me, O O Tyre and Sidon? Are you going to pay me back for anything? Pay him back. Why are we in conflict? We're in conflict because of verse 3 where it says uh, that they had, well, prior in verse 2, they said they've scattered among the nations my people, divided up my land, have cast lots of my people, and have traded says they've traded. 
They traded a boy for a prostitute. They traded a, a, a girl for wine. It's this idea of trading what's valuable to God. Remember, it says, you took my silver, you took my gold, you took the rich treasures, you took them into your temples. You traded. And, and really, this passage, I think, is about this, this potential trade that we're all accustomed to. And this book is really a reminder that trading with God is easy, right? That's your first uh, fill-in. Trading what God values is easy. Number one, it's easy. Ooh, silver, gold, let me take that. Uh, You're forgetting what's important to God. Hey, I don't need this little boy anymore. I'm going to take a prostitute, and then she can work for me. I'll I'll take advantage of her, and she'll uh, make profit for me. Hey, I, I want to feel good. I, I want some wine. I'll just trade this little girl for some wine. And then it says, and then you drank it. And then once you've traded the girl and you've drank the wine that you traded for, now what do you have? You got a buzz at best. And a few minutes later, you realize you have nothing. Because you've taken what was valuable to God and you traded it. And God says, be careful. It's easy to do that. Because you'll see things that you like or you'll see things that other people do. You know, all the other churches do it. Your church should do it too. You know, all the people do it. Uh, We should do it too. You know, it's common practice. It's funny. I was raised with this little phrase. Well, if other people, everybody else jumped off the bridge, would you jump off too? No. Why? Because jumping off the bridge is stupid. That's how you die. So don't jump off the bridge no matter what. And it's almost like we've kind of forgotten that with God. It is really easy to turn from the Lord and go do your own thing. Why? Because trading what God values is easy, selfish, and selfish. Why? I got something I want. I want it now. I'm not going to wait for it. I'm not going to work for it. I'm not going to pay for it. I'm going to take. I'm going to be impatient, and I'm going to value me over God. That's how you get in trouble. That's how Tyre and Sidon got in trouble. That's how you end up in the valley of decision. That's where God says, well, I got to judge you. Why? Because you've forgotten what's important to me. Actually, you haven't really forgotten. You just traded it. And the fastest way for you to get in trouble is not for you to worship other gods because you're not supposed to have any of the gods before me. Remember I quoted that from the uh, Ten Commandments earlier? No. The biggest problem we have is when we become our own God. That's my favorite thing to say to atheists. Oh, you know, I'm, 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 I appreciate that you're a pastor, Scott, but I'm an atheist. I don't, I don't believe in God. I said, oh, no, you believe in God. You've just assumed the position. You've assumed the title. See, the problem with there being no God is then who makes the decisions? Who gets to be in control? I do. And that's the most dangerous place for us to be in. Great argument for Paul to make with us that there are actually no other gods. Why? Because when there are no other gods, then you are. That's super dangerous. You see, trading what God values is easy, selfish, and costly. It's costly. God says, no, I dwell in Zion. I'm right here in Jerusalem. I've always been, I am now. I will always be. In fact, we sang it earlier, right? Christ before me, Christ behind me. Wow, Joel knew that. But somehow people in general forget it. It's so easy to get yourself in trouble with God and make a decision that goes outside of his design and his plan for your life and then consequences happen and you get upset with God for the consequences rather than praising him for telling you all along this wasn't how it was supposed to be. But you chose to be disobedient. You chose to go your own way. You devalued other people for whatever reason. And now you're reaping the whirlwind. The results are coming back to haunt you. And if you continue, ultimately, I'll come back to haunt you, he says. Scary. Scary. Verse 2 and 3, I put down as a reference for there. It really goes through verse 7. And 4, 5, 6, and 7 are kind of reiteration of what happens in 2 and 3, right? But then we get to verse uh, 14, 
where it says this thing, it says multitudes and multitudes. I pointed this out as we're going through the passage in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It's kind of like, well, kind of, it's really a a midway point in uh, the passage in some ways, not literally we're 21 verses and so it's 14. Gosh, God, you're not any good with math. That's two thirds, not one half. Get over yourself. Conceptually, it's the middle of the passage. Conceptually, it's the middle of the poem. That there's this valley of decision. He says it twice. One of the few things that he says twice is, there's a decision coming. We're all going to be gathered together, and you got to make decisions. Remember, I asked you, is it God's decision or your decision? I said, say both. You said both. That day's coming. And he says, don't forget that. And then what does he say five, six verses earlier? Verse nine, he says, hey, proclaim among the nations, consecrate a war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men draw near and let them come up. He says, hey, war's coming, valley of decision. And ahead of time, why don't you go prepare? Be proactive, get your stuff together, get organized, assign some roles, get some tools, turn them into whatever. Be proactive. But then what does it say Several verses, four verses after 14 in verse 17. At the end of all this, what does it say? So that you will know, you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. What's he say? There's a decision to be made. Ahead of time, you're going to need to be actively prudent. Actively prudent. You need to think through what actions you're going to take between now and the valley of decision. Because once you get there, you want to be prepared. And by the way, it's off in the distance, so be patient. Be actively prudent and patient because uh, the day's coming. He, he's not saying I'm coming. He's saying I'm already here, right? I dwell in Zion. I dwell in Jerusalem. I'm here right now, and I'm just waiting. And I want to see how you respond. Are you following me or not? Are you going along with culture? Are you going with the vote? Are you going along with the community? Are you going on with the social media or the postings or what's convenient for people who are selfishly, easily getting a costly path? Do you want to go with them or do you want to go with God? Because if you're going to go with God, you're going to need to be patient. It's going to take some time. And you're going to be smart about it. What's he kind of saying? He's kind of saying, uh, decide before the valley of decision. (laughs) You need to decide ahead of time what you're going to decide when you get to the valley. Know what you're doing. Know where you're going. Know how to get there. Know what maybe the next step is, and then do your best. But you kind of got to go with what's coming. It's kind of like waves. You ever heard the phrase, make some waves? It's not going the way you want. I'm going to make some waves. Oh, okay. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I've made waves. Well, how'd you do that? Well, I jumped in the pool and I started splashing around and I made some waves. No, you didn't. You made ripples, teeny little ripples in a confined space, right? A wave that happens out on the coast, that happens on the beach, on some of the massivest. Massivist, that's a great word. Um, bodies of water there are. You stand on the coast and watch a real wave come, you know, oh, I could never make that. I could never actually make a wave. It's not that we go out into the ocean and jump around and say, like, oh, I'm going to make some waves. No, you splashed around and got a little attention, maybe. You see, we don't get to make waves. Waves come and they go. In fact, where do waves even come from? A butterfly flaps his wings way across the planet and the wind blows and the temperature changes, the sun goes up and down and the moon and wind currents and animals and the next thing you know, it gets all the way to the U.S. coast and all of a sudden we've got waves. There's so many things that go into that. There's no way we can make a wave. But you could go out into the ocean and you could catch a wave, right? Right? Remember, catch a wave? I think the Beach Boys told us, catch a wave and you're sitting on top of the world, right? Not that you go make waves, you go catch waves or you ride a wave. What's the concept there? Well, I could never make a wave, but I could go enjoy a wave if I meet it where it's at and follow the momentum of what's actually going on. Or you could sit on the shore 
and think to yourself, I'm not going out there, it's dangerous. Dark water, there's sharks, the thing could splash me, I could drown, there's currents, I don't have a flotation device, that wetsuit's too hard to put on, and then it's itchy, and then when it's wet, I have to take it off, and that's too, I mean, you could just say, I skipped the whole thing, I'm just gonna stay on the shore. That's what I, when it comes to real surfing, that's what I do. When it comes to your relationship with the Lord, put on the suit, get out on the ocean and, and try it. Not because you could ever make a wave, but because you could catch a wave, you could ride a wave, you could do what God's doing and go along with it and enjoy it and see where it takes you. Or you could fight the wave and it'll come crashing down on you. Or you could skip the whole experience out on the shore and never get anything. That's what really it's about. It's about us being uh, actively prudent and patient. Uh, Lastly, give God your time or excuse me, God gives you time, right? He says, in that day, that day's gonna, time's gonna come, and here, what's that imply? Well, and I haven't avenged that blood yet. He says, you've got some time. How, how great of him to let us mull it over, think about it, practice it, try it, experiment, ask other people, go to worship, right? But with that time, he also says, um, I'm gonna give you options, I'm going to let you choose. You want the sweet wine and the flowing milk and the, every, every valley has water in it or I'm going to provide for everything? Or you want to go find a plowshare and try to turn it into a weapon, you little weakling, and you're going to try to fight God? You got options. How about this? Long after you between, choose between God or not, there's a whole myriad of other questions to ask. Do I want to do this kind of job? Do I want to be in this kind of relationship? Do I want to save my money or spend my money? Where do I want to go? Where, how do I want a calendar? What do I let into my eyes? What do I put into my body? All these different decisions that you get. You know, how great is it that we are not puppets? That we have no strings to hold us down. We have choices. We have options and time. How great of it for God to be that gracious with us. The greatest grace that God provided for us with the death of his son, the redemption of us, and the forgiveness of our sins through his shed blood on the cross. That is the greatest grace that he would care about us that much that he would do this for us. And then a second, distant, is that after that, he'd say, now let's play. Let's play together. Beyond that, here's the problem. And this is the one I really, I don't like this one. I hate this one. It gives us time, options, and some mystery. Darn it! Wish I could have all the answers. Nope, you don't get all the answers. Even after 25 years, 50 years. You got more questions than answers, don't you? The smarter you get, the less you know. You heard that phrase? Why? Because there's all these other, well, if electricity works this way, then, well, I have 10 more questions about electricity, right? No matter what industry or thing or discipline you chase, the more you learn, the more questions you'll have. It's a great thing about the scientific method. My wife knows this. After 25 years of marriage, she has way more questions about me now than she has answers, right? And God bless her. But it's this idea that, uh, that God doesn't give us all the answers. He gives us just some of the answers. How great that some of the answers that he gives us are ones where we can know him, right? So that you will know that I am God and I dwell, in, right? You can know certain things. What can you do with, you know, with what you know rather than panic about the mystery, panic about the future, fear the unknown, anxiety about what is yet to be, instead of, once you take the time and the ability to choose that God has given you, go see what it's like. What would it be like to wade out into that water and see how that wave is going to treat you and try to ride it and do the best you can? I'm sure you're going to get tossed around and you're going to get washing machined for sure. That's how life works, right? We get tossed and blown by the wind. But to not try you're missing out on the mystery. 
Do you think the mystery is a, is a curse or a frustration or God limiting you? Or you could, you could see it as his guarantee to keep an ongoing, interactive, immersive, interpersonal relationship with you. It's great to have this mystery of what he wants to do. It's kind of like a junior high dance. Remember junior high dances? I remember junior high dances, some of the greatest times in my life. I remember not ever knowing what a junior high dance was and hearing about it for the first time. Somebody said, have you heard about the dance? I said, the dance? What do you mean? The jitterbug? The waltz? Which, which dance are you talking about? They said, no, 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 not a dance. Well, it is a dance, but it's an event. It's not a specific dance. What do you mean? An event? What is this event? Well, we all gather at the school after hours. We turn the lights down. We play music. And the girls all stand on one side and the boys stand on the other side. And we engage in the mystery of other people and trying to learn how to dance. And it's a total mess. It's glorious. Why don't you come with me? Right? I heard about this dance thing in junior high. And I thought to myself, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't think I've ever danced. I definitely haven't done it in public. This could be embarrassing, and there's going to be girls there. Well, they all have cooties. I shall not go. Right? No, you have to go. Why? We're going to have fun. Are you sure? I don't know, but let's try it. Okay, well, what time do I show up? Well, first you've got to go to the activity center and sign up. Why would I have to sign up? Can't I just show up? No, you have to pay five bucks. Wait a minute. I'm going into this mystery, and it's going to cost me something? Yes, it is. I don't want to go. Please come with me, right? At some point, I decided I'm going to go try it out for the first time. And it was a massive train wreck. <laughs> I don't know how to talk to girls. I don't know how to dance. I don't know how to dance with girls I've talked to. I don't know what outfit to wear. I don't know half the songs. The DJ didn't play the ones I like. Sometimes it's too light in there. Sometimes it's too dark in there. They didn't have the right snacks, blah, blah, blah. Well, it got really late and... I'm all sweaty and holy. Is that how it went? No. I mean, today I look back and I think, oh, what a train wreck. Could have been so much better. At the time, it was glorious. Why? I had friends there and we had a great old time. I got to learn new music and try dancing and I actually talked to some girls and whoa, that was kind of a train wreck, but at least I tried. And at the end of the night, pitch dark, standing on the corner at the school, sweating like crazy. Here comes my mom picking me up, taking me home. And I'm thinking, how glorious. Yeah, that's our relationship with the Lord. There's a ton of mystery to it. And it's going to cost you something. And you have to decide to try and get involved and go do it. And no, it won't be perfect. But it won't be a train wreck either. I mean, you might look back on it 30 years later, 40 years later, and laugh at some of the things you did and said and think to yourself, boy, I'm glad I grew out of that, progressed. But how will you progress or grow out of it until you start that relationship, until you try? I remember my friend Steve, we were both junior hires, and I said to him, are you going to the dance? said, no, I'm not going to the dance. Are you going to the dance? I said, I think I am. I think I'm going to go to the dance. I said, really? You're crazy. I said, yeah, why don't you be crazy with me too? What? Come to the dance with me. We'll ride together. I don't know. See if your mom can drive. Or my mom will drive and your mom picks up or something. Um, at least we'll be awkward together. I said, all right. We went to the dance, had that whole experience that I already described, and we all went home. I, I remember like a week or two later, Steve's mom comes up to me. She's almost crying. And is thank I'm 13. I just want to thank you for inviting my son and taking him with you to the dance. There's no way he would have ever gone on his own. And if you hadn't gone and hadn't drug him along with you, he'd have never had that experience. And I can't tell you how much I, I, I can't thank you enough as his mom. She's starting to cry. I'm 13. I think this is dorky. And yet I'm starting to cry like, what's going on here? I don't know. 
what we do in our journey with the Lord affects other people way beyond what you understand or will ever fully comprehend. We've got waves to ride, folks. We've got mysteries to explore. And you do have choices, little and big, and they will affect everything. But eventually we're going to end up in the valley of decision, aren't we? What will you decide between now and then? That's the choice. Good news. There's plenty of decisions to make this year. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our chances side. More importantly, Lord, thank you for your level of control and that you have a system that actually does work, that your son came and guaranteed that it would work regardless of our shortcomings, but that you let us fumble through life and make mistakes in order that we might learn how to value other people, value you, for some of us, value ourselves. I pray, Lord, for the decisions we have to make. Pray for, Lord, how we follow you, what we think about, from small to big, for fears we have, the mystery of the future, the excitement, the hope for what we want to see happen. Pray, Lord, that none of those things would ever take the place of you or get in the way of you, that we would never have our own temples, but that we would involve you in all of it first and foremost that we might learn how to take direction from outside of ourselves maybe our spouse, maybe our family maybe our jobs, maybe the authorities maybe the officials but mostly that we might learn how to take our direction from you that we would practice that in every way necessary so that we could ride the wave that is you Thank you, Lord, for the offering that we're about to receive. Pray you bless it. In Jesus' name, amen.